Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. This is really a wonderful, well, we've done a double event today at four o'clock, Dirk and three authors, Mike Madden, Graham Brown, and Jack DeBrule talked about the Mediterranean caper because it published 50 years ago. So 2024, and I, I made the error of saying it was Clive's first book and then Dirk put me straight. <laughs> so, well, second one was Are you on? No, I don't think you're on. Here, just turn this way. There we go. Is that better? Okay. Uh, second, second book he wrote, first one that was published though. So uh, his first novel or manuscript was called Pacific Vortex, and uh, he got rejected on that one uh, initially. Uh, but uh, later on, he went back and rewrote it and published it uh, as, as Pacific Vortex. Uh, but it was the second second uh, manuscript, Mediterranean Caper, that was published in 1973. And so we're celebrating 50 years of Dirk Pitt uh, this year, which is kind of hard to believe. Uh, I think I was 12 years old when that book came out, so. <laughs> Not necessarily an inspiring author at that point, right? No, no who knows? So um, if you've noticed on the table when you came in, there's a book there called Mayday, and Mayday is the British title for Mediterranean Caper, and there was an enterprising publisher named James Cahill who actually published a hardcover edition um, of May Day, i.e. the Mediterranean Caper, because it was a paperback original. So if you're wondering, and we did find, having not cleaned out our storage locker for more years than is, um, we did find that Clive, we still had signed copies of May Day, and we also had um, Built to Thrill, the book that Clive car collection, the first book. And is that the pre-war cars? Uh, primarily, yeah. So there were two car books. And, uh, but that focuses on the pre-war cars. He, he's, his collection uh, has a lot of cars from the 30s and 40s. And then the, they did the second book, uh, mostly 50s, 40s and 50s cars in that one. So if you like the pre-war stuff, uh, that's a good book and it's got some great photos in there. So take a look on the way out, if nothing else. Well, they actually are signed by Clive in case any of you think I'm invoking AI, you know, to fake you out. This is this is the real deal. And when we were talking this afternoon, I went to my library shelf and I pulled out a copy of Blackwind uh, signed by both Dirk and Clive. And that is the first book that Dirk wrote as Dirk Pitt. So did you even imagine that we'd be sitting here today talking about the Corsican shadow? Absolutely not. <laughs> You know, I, I I wrote that book, I think, uh, very naively sitting down with, with Clive and think, okay, I can write a book. You know, as growing up with a writer as a father, uh, it wasn't a foreign concept, I think, to write a book. And, and even though as, as a young person, I didn't have a, a, a burning aspiration to be a writer, I thought, oh, I'll write a book at some point. I'll write a book someday. Um, and so I think I probably attacked that one very naively at the time. And it was probably after it was published and, and the second one was on the table to write where I think I kind of realized, <laughs> kind of bit off a lot here and uh, it was maybe more intimidating. But but yeah, hard to believe 20 years have gone by since then. It'll be 20 years next year uh, since Blackwind came out. So. I find it really hard to believe too. <laughs> so I, I still remember going out to dinner with Clive after Trojan Odyssey when he talked to me about, you know, whether whether bringing in someone, he didn't actually name you, whether bringing someone in to write with him for the Dirk Pitt series was a good idea. And basically he said, and I think it's true, that Mediterranean Caper was a relatively slender thriller, right? Yes, it was. And and certainly the, the format of the book was much different than, than what he evolved to. It was it was sort of a, uh, a simplified plot. Uh, I, I think Pitt shows up probably in chapter one and he's pretty much in all the chapters all the way through the end of the book. And it wasn't probably another two or three books, probably Raise the Titanic, I think, uh, his third third book published, where he sort of evolved his style uh, uh, to, the, to the format that's continued since then with the historical format, uh, multiple subplots, uh, just a lot of action. History. Uh, and history. Yeah, and I hear a uh, historical backstory in Sierra Forest. So basically what he said was he was getting to the point where the amount of research and the amount of heavy lifting that would go into writing another book like Trojan Odyssey was going to be more than he felt like he could do uh, and do well. It wasn't that he couldn't do it, but could he do it well? And so anyway, the next thing I know, here's, here's Dirk Pitt writing 
or Dirk Kessler writing. I get confused. <laughs> Dirk Kessler writing Dirk Fit. And then I think a question for all of us is, could anybody else ever actually write Dirk Fit, or would they have to adopt your name? <laughs> I'm serious. I think, I think it's a really good question. There's way too many Dirks, I think, already in the, in the, in the pot here. I don't know if we need to throw any more in. <laughs> well, there's a branding thing. And the other thing, for those who don't know it, is that Clive was in advertising. Clive came to writing from advertising. And if you're anywhere near my age, you will remember the jingle, Ajax, the foaming cleanser, floats the dirt right down the drain. That was Clive. I said, every time I see Clive or saw Clive and still think about Clive, that, that jingle just goes through my head. So it was a double branding operation there. It was, I guess. I mean, he did, uh, I think he worked on a Budweiser ad too. And I was trying to remember what, what the, uh, what the catch line for that was, but yeah, in, in his, in his advertising days in, in L.A. In, in the late 60s, uh, uh, he worked for a couple agencies and worked on a lot of big campaigns. And I think that really showed his creativity. I mean, that was that was his gift. I mean, he was just a super creative guy, and he, he transferred, uh, you know, those skills from advertising into, into writing novels. But he wasn't just a creative guy. He was an actual adventurer. Were any of you at the 80th birthday party that we gave to Clive at the Arizona Biltmore? That's right. You were, sir. And you remember all the photos of Clive doing, you know, dirt pit sorts of things, you know? It was um, climbing rocks and sailing ships and, you know, did he did he parachute? Seems to me I remember. Weren't, weren't there some actual scenes where he came out of airplanes or flew in airplanes? or I don't remember. But he did most of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, certainly he did scuba diving, all his shipwreck expeditions, uh, prospected, I guess, out in the deserts of California when he was younger. So, uh, yeah, he liked he liked to be outdoors. He liked to be adventurous in his own life. And, and certainly that, that made its way into a lot of the books, too. It really did. So when you and the other authors currently writing in the, we call it the Cussler verse, it's just easier that way. Do you all see Clive? I mean, as Dirk Pitt or as any of these characters, is he kind of there in the background? Oh, he absolutely is for me. I mean, uh, obviously having grown up with him as my father and and starting to read uh, read his books, I mean, from the get-go, uh, it's so clear to see him in the character of Pitt. I mean, certainly there was a resemblance to begin with, six foot three, black, wavy hair, uh, kind of on the lean side, though. Less so for him later on, but uh, uh, but just his personality uh, yeah. it sh shines through as well. And so, yeah, it 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 uh, it's fun. I mean, for me, if if I'm writing a chapter or a scene uh, about Pitt and I need a description or or behaviorism, uh, I can think of my dad and say, okay, either what would he do in real life or what would he do for Pitt in that situation? Uh, and so it's it's not a real stretch to to incorporate uh, uh, my memories of him into the character. So speaking of the larger than life characters, would any of you care to hazard who the larger than life character is in the background of a book called The Corsican Shadow? Nobody? Nobody, seriously? All right, it's Napoleon. Because he was not French, he was Corsican. And so the minute I saw it, I thought, okay, we're going to be going to France. And I have to tell you, in a really terrible scene in this book, which just scared me to death, it came very close to losing the Eiffel Tower. As Pitt and Giordano are racing in a truck filled with explosives trying to save everything, they come to a grinding halt at the foot of the Eiffel Tower. And then... I'm not going to tell you what happens then, <laughs> but you really worried me. So is blowing up monuments part of the Kessler? <laughs> I guess, you know, yeah, the bigger the better, I guess. So you can't get much bigger than the Eiffel Tower. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. It just, uh, it worked out to have a chase scene in Paris. And uh, uh, we had actually visited there uh, shortly before. Uh, uh, my family and I went over right before COVID closed things down, and uh, which was great because we got to go through the Louvre and, and Eiffel Tower and all those things, and, and uh, there were very little crowds. We got right in to see everything. So uh, it's kind of a natural, I guess, to, to throw that in symbolism for, for Paris, that uh, he would at least make a shot at taking it down. Anyway. Well, it's a constant quest in our Kessler book to be looking for locations that nobody else has done or monuments nobody else has destroyed so far. So um, this is your... Do you know, when, when Dirt, was it was it the last book that that has the scenes in Nepal? Yes, yeah, okay. the devil scene. So we sat down to talk about that book, and I said to Dirk, how is it that basically a maritime thriller starts out in the 
Himalayas in Nepal. And Dirk looked at me and he said, I did it. He said, because I knew that was one place you hadn't been. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, and you did it really well. I thought it worked out super well. Um, what 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 brought you know this particular plot to mind? Because it starts with a scene during the First World War. Uh, sorry, Second, Second World, World War. War. Yeah. yeah, in the uh, at Love. Right, and and originally a couple a couple of items that kind of triggered it. Uh, one was when I was a kid, I saw a movie uh, called uh, "Is Paris Burning," and and I ran across the book recently and and and, and read it, and it's a riveting account of of Paris in the late days of the war when uh, the Allies had landed, uh, 1944, and they were making their way uh, onto Paris, and the Germans were on the verge of evacuating it. And Hitler had ordered uh, the, the commandant to, to burn Paris on the way out. And so there was all kind of interesting sort of controversies and activities in the French underground, and, and the German commander at the end uh, refused the order. Um, anyway, that, that sort of triggered some some interest in in what was happening, I think, in in France and Paris in World War II, um, and I looked at some other information too. And, and one thing that that uh, just sort of intrigued me was was going back to the start of the war um, in 1939. Uh, the Germans invaded Poland, and and uh, France and and Britain declared war on Germany right away. And, and both countries suddenly massed all their, their armies on the border, border of France and Belgium. Well, this was in the fall of 1939. Uh, the armies were there, and then nothing happened. And they went into this long period they called the phony war, where, where the armies were there, and they were prepared to fight, but, but nobody pulled the trigger. And it was, I think, during this point that uh, uh, a lot of activities, uh, a lot of actions in Paris occurred to preserve some of their monuments. Uh, including the Louvre, where they went in and, and took out the Mona Lisa and, and all the paintings, boxed them up and shipped them off to other parts of France. Uh, and then uh, finally things broke loose in, in May of 40, uh, May of 40, when the Germans did finally attack. But I just thought that was that was sort of an interesting sort of time frame. And as part of doing some research in that, I, I ran across um, uh, sort of an obscure biography of this fellow who was a, a banker in Antwerp and um, in, in sort of that same element, actually he was caught up right at the time of, of the invasion in 1940, uh, his, his bank dealt with all the diamond merchants in Antwerp. And as, as, the, uh, as the Germans began to advance, uh, he collected all the deposits, met down with the president, and they were gonna evacuate all the diamonds that were in the bank's deposits. And so this guy got approval from, from um, he had to <laughs> last minute get all these approvals from, from uh, the mayor and the governor of Antwerp and, and, the, and the country to, to be able to take these diamonds and get passes to get into France. And uh, it was interesting, I got a kick because he drove a Packard convertible of all cars. But he loaded up um, a big crate full of diamonds in the trunk of his car and, and he beat it towards France and he got caught up in these convoys and, and he had to fight his way through the lines, you know, with all his authorizations and he got to Paris and then he realized once he was there that even Paris wasn't safe and they were, he continued on to the south of France and ultimately uh, he, he boarded a vessel in Marseille and when he got on the ship he, he rigged a bunch of life preservers around his case of diamonds uh, in fear that if, if the ship was torpedoed and even if he died that maybe the diamonds would be saved and somebody would find them. Uh, as it turned out, he, he did successfully get to, to England and the diamonds were, were stored there. But I use that as, as sort of a secondary plot in the book, uh, as sort of a chase for diamonds. Again, what, what happened if, if, you know, this case, a similar case, those diamonds didn't uh, make it safely out and ended up in maybe some other fashion, put on another ship and disappeared. So that's, that's kind of the, the other driving plot in the story. It's kind of a chase for some World War II diamonds out of Antwerp. That, uh, yeah, there's there's uh, been forever speculation about a big shipment of gold, Nazi gold, that is apparently, or thought to be sunk in a lake somewhere. I'm trying to remember Bavaria or somewhere. Um, but the advantage to diamonds is that they don't weigh very much, whereas gold is incredibly heavy. So you could put all of those diamonds in a, you know, in a case. Um, successfully, whereas with gold, you'd be very limited by what you could carry. Right. And then the other thing was sort of interesting is, is the value increase in diamonds from World War II. 
and I put it in the book, and now I can't remember what the number is, but it's it's something on the order of 50 times or even 100 times uh, the value of diamonds uh, today versus what they were in, in 1940. Right, and those were uncut diamonds, so, you know, I think mostly. Antwerp is in Belgium, and I've been there a couple of times, and um, there still is a a diamond industry there. There's a diamond museum in Amsterdam, but Amsterdam is really not the locus of the, you know, the diamond thing. And part of right. that, part of that came from De Beers in South Africa because that was the major, the Kimberley mines and so forth were the major source of diamonds. But now that the permafrost is, you know, falling and so forth, they're finding diamonds all kinds. One of the biggest halls is in Canada, which I love. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, because, you know, they come out of volcano glacier activity. Oh, right. They're the yeah. tubes. And I read a book called, uh, Matthew Hart, I think his name is, wrote a book called Diamond, which is absolutely brilliant. So if you want to know anything about diamonds, which you didn't need to know because you were just going <laughs> to put them in a suitcase. Yeah, I needed that last year, Barbara. Right. Oh, I got it. So you're heading instead, though, of Marseille. You're heading to La Havre, which is uh, one of the major ports on the channel, La Havre and Cherbourg. Um, and, um, and the idea is for this diamond guy to load his books, I mean, his, his diamonds onto a little coastal steamer or whatever it was, or a ferry. Right, yeah. And that sort of plays into the... Uh... The cover art on the book is is he arrives in a Bugatti. Um, the port is under attack from some German Stuka divers, uh, dive bombers. And so uh, he doesn't make it, but the, the diamonds do get put on the ship. And then uh, from there, there's a, a mystery in terms of where they where they end up. So the ship probably sinks, right? Or otherwise, there wouldn't be any reason for... Numa to be pulling up. You have the to ship. have some sunken ships. <laughs> I know you do. Absolutely true. No, it's a it's a great subplot, but um, but that's just part of the the story. So, how do you weave all these um, different elements together and keep it all straight? <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure. It's uh, you know, it's just a process. Uh, I'll I'll put a rough outline together and and try and and develop sort of the major action scenes and maybe try and figure out. Uh, where the story's going to end up. Uh, but a lot of that comes through the mechanics as, as I write. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of outline more heavily, at, at, say, 100 pages at a time, and then get into that and, and do the writing. But there's plenty of points where I kind of get stuck and say, oh, you know, you get into a dead end in terms of, of following some leads and then have to kind of work my way out of it. But uh, a lot of it's just as, as you go. I mean, I, again, the, the the top level outline is there and it's just kind of filling in the details and, and sometimes it goes in different directions than, than I kind of intend, but uh, that's not always, not always a bad thing. So sometimes the real world catches up with, or you catch up with the real world. This book is just out now, but you didn't write it recently, but you actually have a group posing as Hamas attacking, but they're not attacking. Well, where are they attacking? Uh, well, they did attack in Israel, actually, was, was I think, an early chapter, uh, and then also in, uh, in France as well, in Paris. But they turn out not to be terrorists. But I thought, how interesting that you would have written a book about um, <laughs> Hamas, a Hamas attack, attack Israel. in Israel. Oh. Um, and, you know, that's an interesting thing about thrillers, um, is that very often thriller writers seem to anticipate real-life events in ways that are surprising, and so here you are. And the other part is that very often the books that they write could never equal the actual stuff happening in the world. I mean, people would just laugh if you, you know, tried to capture some of what is going on today in a book, and people would not believe it. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, uh, truth exceeds fiction, I think, uh, many times in terms of its unbelievability and uh Unfortunately, in the world we live in, it seems seems to be happening more and more frequently. So the the jacket copy does indicate what a, a sort of part of goal of what this attacking group is. Do you feel like you want to talk about it, or do we want to keep that a secret so people will take the book home and read it? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. I think it's it is a bit of a. Um... Spoiler alert, I guess, maybe. So maybe perhaps we can dodge that. Uh, okay. But. but it does take you to some other places. So it takes you to Israel, it takes you to Egypt. Um, so do you, you know, I know you've gone to some of the places that you write about, but what do you do if you're going to write about a place you haven't been? Uh, it's just a lot of research. I mean, it's it's obviously the Internet is, is a great source. You know, I hate to admit it, but 
but it is. I mean, you can get on Google Earth uh, and and zero on down to a location and kind of get an idea of say what the terrain looks like. You know, where which way do the roads go? Uh, is is there power lines? Is what do the buildings look like? So. Uh, there's certainly a wealth of information out there. I mean, it's, it's obviously never as good as being able to put your feet on the ground and, and see it up close, but I have the, the bad habit of, of visiting places after I've written about them or, <laughs> or become so intrigued that I want to go visit mm -hmm. them uh, after I've written, them, written about them. Uh, and that's certainly the case. There's a couple of places in here. I, I've, I've used Bermuda again, which I used Bermuda in a recent book. Uh, there's, there's Martinique, there's places in the U.S. Um, I will say that my wife and I did take a visit to West Point recently, uh, again, after the fact, and there's a scene in the book uh, that takes place at West Point as well. So, yeah, my research always seems to be kind of kind of uh, ass backwards, I guess. <laughs> yeah, West Point. Have you been to West Point? It's absolutely beautiful. You go up the Hudson, and there's an interesting curve in the river, which is what it makes strategically, but nearby is a fort. So I was amazed to learn on the one time that I went to West Point that because Lake Champlain is right above it, that we had a Navy. And if I remember right, Benedict Arnold was in charge of the Navy. He was an admiral. Is that right? Does that ring a bell? And so there was a battle in which um, if the British had defeated Benedict Arnold and the U.S. ships would have really gone badly for the American Revolution. But never occurred to me that we actually, you know, that was the sort of start of our naval adventures right, there. Yeah, Lake Champlain and all that. Yeah, there was a lot of interesting battles up there. Um, when we were there, they talked about how they had a chain. They would put a chain across the river, across the Hudson there, yeah. to prevent, I guess, the British from from traveling up uh, and, and uh, making attacks. So, yeah, interesting, interesting geography there, and it had a big impact on on the outcome of the war. Well, but West Point's the Army. I mean, Annapolis is the is the Navy, and um, you know, long long way away. But we all think of Benedict Arnold, and you know, revile him as, uh, but it turned out he was an actual naval hero at the beginning. Right. Yeah, that's true. Right. Um, so, where else do you go in the book that you'd like to mention? Uh, let's see. Uh, I talked about Bermuda. Um, actually, Martinique is is uh, an interesting place that's that's on my radar. I would like to visit now too, having having written written about it as well. Uh, I've talked to some people who've been there. Said it's great. Uh, their food is wonderful because it's a French island and uh, very welcoming as well. So. Maybe the next Caribbean trip, we'll, we'll have to work our way down there. Well, France actually still has an empire that goes around the world. You know, we always think of the British as having a global empire. But France still has Martinique in the uh, Caribbean. It still has French Polynesia in the Pacific. It has Reunion in the Indian Ocean and others. So it, it does actually still span the globe. Yeah, Banatos or what, a couple others in the Pacific. Banatos, so yeah, which I, and also um, French Guiana, I think, mm -hmm. um, in South America. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, when we were in French Polynesia, you haven't gone there yet, have you? Because no, I've been there. Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> um, I was really interested um, in that France supplies, uh, they run the post office, they run um, the um, National Guard, whatever. They, the, there's a local council, local government, but the French also run the educational system. The food is fabulous, as you point out. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting to me how they do it so far away. But the other thing I thought was great is the Olympics are coming to Paris in 1924, this coming year. But there's a, um, some kind of water sport or something that Paris can't actually do. So on, on uh, Tahiti, they have a a little spot where they are quickly erecting an Olympic village. There's only one bridge to get there. So I have no idea how that's going to work, but they were starting and working on it when we were there so they could have this one Olympic sport um, and still be in France. Oh, really? Oh, and I think I read too that they, they've cleaned up the, the Seine River so much that they're going to have either a swimming event or something. They are. There. Uh, I mean, apparently 100 years ago, everybody swam in the river, and then it's been... No, they are cleaning it up, and they're trying to get Notre Dame rebuilt, you know, to reopen it for the French Olympics. But the this is the part that I don't like. They are going to move for security reasons. They say all the bouquinis, all the used book stalls that line a bridge across the Seine, and they claim for security purposes, they're going to have to disband them. And so the French are inclined to protest and sue at the absolute drop of 
the hat, putting on their yellow jackets and the whole bit. So the bouquinis, the booksellers are, you know, we'll see if they're successful. Let's, let's hope that's a temporary ban. Only. I hope so. Well, they claim that if it's once dismantled, it would be almost impossible uh -huh. to put it back up. And uh -huh. I can only conclude that what they see, this I don't remember which bridge it is, but they must see that this is like the opening ceremony, you know, or something is going to go across this um, bridge. And years ago, when we were in South Africa, the soccer stadium is in a really terrible place. It's down, um, or there's malaria, and there's all this other stuff outside of um, Cape Town. And so we asked, why Why is the soccer stadium in this awful place? And they said, well, it should be up here by the mountain. But the Olympic Committee, which is why they built the soccer stadium, said it would be much more visual if it were down where you could see the water. So, you know, sometimes these major building plans are... Yeah, based on TV. Yeah, they really are. So there's another, another you could explore Olympic um, <laughs> corruption or see how it goes. So what do you want to say about the book? Uh, how what, about, uh, can, I, can I talk about the submarine? You can talk so, about whatever you want. All right. So, uh, you know, the funnest part for me in writing these is, is, is the historical part. I mean, that's the part I think I really enjoy the most is, is doing some of the research and... and coming across elements that can, I can weave into the story. And uh, one of the, the items I use in this one is, is a vessel called the Surcouf, which is a, a submarine that was built by the French uh, in the 1920s. Uh, actually, going back to, to Black Wind, my first book, uh, I used a Japanese submarine. There was a class of subs built in World War II by the Japanese, and they were called I-400s. And they were very massive, big submarine, and it had a, a big... Uh, storage unit on the top deck where they actually had an airplane. They carried a float float plane and they could surface and, and assemble this float plane and launch it from a catapult uh, and use that as, as a means of attack. Well, this was built, these were built by the Japanese in the late 30s. Well, the French had actually built a similar design way back in the 1920s. It was a one-off ship called the Surcouf. And it was a massive submarine. It was like three times larger than any submarine that had been built up that, to that point in time. And it had the same feature. It had a, this, this covered deck where it would carry an airplane. And it also had kind of a very unusual sort of rotating uh, gun, uh, gun placement. I think it was a triple barrel gun on the front too. So it was this kind of massive creation that, that you know, took everybody by surprise when it, when it set sail. Uh, and so I kind of incorporate that in the story. Now, unfortunately, by the time World War II came around, the, the ship was very dated, and it, it leaked. It, it had some controversy. Uh, actually, the British tried to, uh, it, it, as the war broke out, it, it sailed over to England, and there was some controversy about the British trying to capture it because they weren't sure that the sailors on the, on the sub were going to be uh, free French or, or united with uh, Vichy the Vichy French. government. Yeah, yeah. Right. But ultimately, it was, it was manned by a free French crew, and it, it served some convoy duty uh, in the Atlantic uh, in the early stages of World War II. And then it went to Halifax to be refit, and then it's, it made a, a stop down in um, Bermuda for some repairs. And it was actually on its way to the Pacific. And there's some question, I guess, whether it was going to go to Tahiti or further east for defensive purposes against the Japanese uh, during the war. Uh, but but it, it disappeared uh, on the way to the Panama Canal. And uh, there's actually two theories in terms of what happened to it. Uh, there's an account that a, a freighter ran into a darkened vessel, which they think may have been the submarine, uh, collided with it, but they didn't think it sank. And then the next day, uh, there was actually a report of some American bombers out of Panama that had attacked what they thought was a German U-boat. Well, after the war, the records indicated that there was no German U-boat in the area. So um, it's, it's believed the ship or the submarine uh, sank in this area somewhere off of Panama, maybe 80, 90 miles. It might have been uh, subject to both attacks. It might have collided with the, the freighter and lost some of its communication gear. And then the next day, <laughs> yeah. they couldn't communicate. They were expected in Panama. They didn't arrive, maybe because of the damage. And then they were inadvertently bombed by an American bombing crew. But uh, anyway, it's, it's a fascinating uh, vessel that is a lost mystery today. 
and would certainly be significant uh, uh, for the French and, and, and any other shipwreck hunters that uh, if we could find find the circuit that would be recovered or uh, discovered. So anyway, I use that in the story because I just thought it was very interesting. And, and of course, a submarine is always a cool thing to put in a put in a pit book. Well, and if it's French, you could hardly escape Jules Verne, right? And the whole shadow of, of that. Um, so is this a potential NUMA mission to find this vessel? Uh, it's probably a safe bet that uh, that would be the case, yes. <laughs> I love that. That's wonderful. So Clive invented NUMA, did he not? And then he made it a reality by actually funding it and setting it up? That's true. That's true. He, he uh, created it as a, a fictional agency in, in, I believe, the Mediterranean Caper, I think right off the bat, uh, that, that Dirk Pitt worked for. It's kind of a, kind of like NOAA, uh, the agency that dealt with uh, uh, the sea and research that, that allowed Pitt to, to be diving and working on submersibles and things like that. And uh, as, as he became successful writing, he, he began to pursue uh, shipwrecks. And he was interested in, in uh, historical shipwrecks. He was never interested in, in searching for treasure wrecks. And he, he, he funded a lot of projects in the U.S. looking for actually Civil War wrecks that were kind of lost or forgotten. Uh, the Hunley, speaking of submarines, was his, his most famous find uh, in Charleston. Um, but, but yeah, he, he, the, he established a nonprofit uh, in order to fund those projects. And uh, he ended up calling it NUMA, National Underwater Marine Agency, uh, that was suggested. He wanted to, he wasn't keen about it at first, but uh, the folks he worked with thought it was a good idea. And uh, so NUMA was born and, and still exists today. Uh, I've, I've worked some of the projects. Uh, we continue to search for a, a, a John Paul Jones wreck over in England in the North Sea, which was lost during the Revolutionary War. So that's been a, a project we fooled around with uh, since 1978, I dare say. Sailing out of Hull, right? Or no, uh, not Hull. Um, Whitby. Whitby, right? The Dracula, the Dracula town. Right. Right. So, are you the chairman of Numa? Yeah, I mean, it's a shoestring operation. <laughs> that and a cup of coffee, you know, or that and a dollar, I'll buy you get a cup of coffee. But uh, yeah, so uh, so Numa still exists, and and yeah, we put a project together maybe once every year, something like that. So uh, we've worked with some fellows out of uh, South Carolina that. That, that actually worked in, in locating the Hunley. Uh, we worked with them for, for years and years, a couple of great guys down there. And uh, so if uh, we get the right project and can arrange the funding and, sure. and uh, you know, we'll, we'll put a project together and go after it. So. so how useful is NUMA? I mean, if you read any, you know, James Rollins, he has Sigma Force and Brad Taylor, I can't remember what, it, what that's called, but having these kind of off the books, you know, um, but structured and funded semi-military organizations really work well for thrillers because otherwise you'd have some guy, you know, just on the loose with no financial backing, no, you know, no chain of command. Accountability, nothing. right. Yeah. 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 And of course, Pitt is now the director of NUMA, so that gives him a lot of flexibility, right, to use the agency's resources as, as he sees fit. And so, but NUMA has employees. So um, who other, what other NUMA characters are to be found in the Corsican shadow? Uh, well, let's see. Of course, Al Giardino. Pitt never goes anywhere with his trusty sidekick, uh, Al Giardino. Uh, we've got the computer whiz, Hiram Yeager, uh, who, who works the computer resources and is, is key to, to uh, coming up with research uh, and, and historical data. Uh, Rudy Gunn is, is the assistant director uh, of NUMA, who's been a longtime character as well. I think he has an appearance in there, certainly at the end. And um, though he's not an official member of, of NUMA, but St. Julian Perlmutter is uh, a maritime researcher that, uh, that Clive invented in one of his early books. And uh, a huge 400-pound kind of bon vivant fellow who's an uh, expert on marine history. So... In the case of the Surcouf, uh, he's critical in terms of identifying where to search for, for this lost submarine. What about the children? And the children are uh, up here. So, uh, of course, Dirk, Dirk and Summer uh, are the children of Dirk Pitt, and uh, they first appeared, I think, in Trojan Odyssey. Uh, or Valhalla Rising, maybe. One of the two. Anybody remember? Come on. 
Do we remember? I'm trying to remember which one. I'm looking it? at you because you've been here a long time. Valhalla, let's call it Valhalla Rising because Trojan Odyssey was his last solo effort. Lastly, it was the last yeah, solo so Dirk, it, Dirk Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. So they appeared, I think, in the book before that. So he had them in uh, in two books. Uh, so they're yeah they're involved too. Uh, they get caught up in in uh, uh, part of the the efforts uh, in let's see. They're in the Irish Sea, I guess, in, in the original part. I have to remember back in the book. It's been about it. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, is, is, you know, there's always a question when you're writing a hero for decades or even one decade about whether the hero ages in real time. Michael Conley was with us Thursday night, and we had that discussion. It's getting harder to find something for Harry Bosch to do because uh, he can't be a policeman anymore. So now, and then he was working as a volunteer in a cold case thing. Now he's driving the Lincoln for the Lincoln lawyer and they're working together. So if is the younger generation, was there some thought, do you think, about Dirk aging out to the point where the Dirk and Summer, Dirk Jr. and Summer would take over? You know, I never I never really had that conversation with my dad. So I, to be honest, I don't know if, if that was, was maybe an intent, you know? I, he didn't really age pit a great deal, I think, no. over over the time that he rode. Or so, Al. So it wasn't like he was ready to retire pit, uh, and uh, so so I don't know. I think maybe it was just uh, just maybe a way to to bring in some new characters. I think and uh, maybe add a little little use to to the stories. I guess. I, so do you readers, do you mind that, or is it sort of an implicit bargain you made that you're going to pick up the book and time will have moved on, but nobody got any older except the author? <laughs> no, I'm serious. You know, does it bother you? Because, you know, I'm thinking about Robert Parker readers or, you know, Tom Clancy or whatever it is. We just sort of expect, you know, events to move forward, but people don't, don't yeah. age to go with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, Pitt, I think, was a... A Vietnam veteran, I think, at the at the beginning. So that would theoretically Spencer was a Korean War veteran when really. Bob Parker started writing that, and I think he ended up as a Desert Storm. Yeah, you know? you have to right. Overlook a few yeah, early details, I guess, to uh, right. <laughs> keep your uh, keep your protagonist young. So just to wind up, and I don't want to talk about why he's in the book, but if you're so interested in the history, how deep a dive did you have to do into Napoleon? And everything around him in order to write this? Uh, not uh, somewhat, you know, actually, uh, we talked a little bit earlier uh, because of the nature of the book. I actually uh, probably did more research on Josephine than, than Napoleon and uh, found her history very interesting in its own right. Uh, because I, I didn't need, I guess, the way the story was structured, uh, a great deal of background in, in terms of Napoleon's history and rise and all that. Um, but Josephine factored in in a large degree to the story, and uh, I, I found her background equally as compelling. Yeah, no, she's a fascinating character. Um, right. I don't think he did well by her, but, you know, he was. there's some dynastic principle that seems to overtake people who become like kings and emperors. And I've always wondered why Henry VIII, who actually did have a perfectly healthy son with Anne Boleyn's older sister, why he never... Because um, you could legitimize a child like that if you needed to. Um, I've always wondered why he just disregarded him and went on this quest, you know, for another era. And Napoleon, Maybe he liked younger women. I don't, I don't know. But Napoleon did the same thing because, you know, he and Josephine didn't have children. So we put her aside to marry Marie of Austria. And there we were. Right. But then supposedly his, his last words were Josephine. So... You know, maybe, you know, she, she may have been his true love, even despite that. And I think he did take care of her, even though she was had lost her official duties and title. And everything. I think he did, too. So one final thing before questions. I have been to Malmaison, Josephine's home, where she was retired. And in the museum there, they have um, some uniforms that Napoleon wore. I'm five feet two, and Napoleon was four foot eight. I could not get into any of Napoleon's clothes if I had wanted to. I'm not, I've shrunk to five foot one, but still. Um, and he was really tiny, you know, which is, I mean, people were smaller generally, so he wasn't, it wouldn't have been quite so dramatic as it would be today when people are taller. But um, he really was a very small guy. And the other thing is he didn't sleep. He was one of those people that could function on three or four hours of sleep. And one reason he got so much done is while everybody else was asleep, he was rattling around in his coach or something and working.
So he wore people out, you know, that worked with him because energy, um, yeah. he was just always on the go. And the other thing I think that the audience would appreciate is is he was a prolific reader, uh, especially in his early days. Uh, he, when he was in the army, his, his buddies were out drinking on the weekends or whatever, and, and he was home reading, studying books, reading history, reading Greek the classics and all that. So. Uh, he was brilliant Smart on guy. government structure. He mm -hmm. was an absolute genius at the government structure and also at the law. So France still operates on the Napoleonic Code, right. which he wrote. So you yeah, know, he had there a major were... impact on, on businesses and, and how they operate and, and so forth. So, yeah, I, you know, he, he probably gets a, a bum rap based on his his, his uh, ego, but uh, but he did a lot of uh, remarkable things. For yeah, he really did. He was a great administrator, and, and mm -hmm. unfortunate that you know power. Overcame him. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, well, I, for one, I'm looking forward to the Ridley Scott movie, and uh, hopefully that'll do do him justice. We'll you see. know, isn't that another lucky thing? You don't have a movie of this, but yeah. you have Ridley Scott bringing Napoleon back to <laughs> nice us. Nice coincidence here. Right. Last movie with Napoleon that I can remember, Marlon Brando was Napoleon. Do you remember that? I can't remember. It was based on... Um, Oh, Desiree. It wasn't actually a book about Napoleon, but there was an historical oh. novel called Desiree, and Marlon Brando was, he was very big, you know, the same haircut, very big, oh, that's the coat. Right. I was thinking Waterloo, but that was Rod Steiger, I think. Yeah. So, questions from all of you. We've sort of nattered around because we can't really talk about the plot without spoiling it, but um, here we are. So, questions, any of you'd like to ask? fundamental aspects of many of the Dirk's Pitt books is that tie-in with chapter one, the historical, and then moving on. As you're writing them, how do you, how do you tie those together? I mean, it's critical that, you, that it fits, and yet you've got the main plot going, but, you know, as you're developing your ideas, how do you tie those two together? Okay, I'll repeat the question. Is The question is, how do you tie in the historical prologue sort of with the rest of the story? And uh, generally speaking, it, it's the impetus of the whole story, uh, coming up with a historical hook and then trying to figure out the impact for today. And that's, that's kind of a, a tough challenge uh, because you can find lots of, lots of interesting historical elements or, or oddities that would be nice to, or interesting to write about it for a prologue. And then the, the difficult part is always kind of making it relevant to, to current day. Uh, but normally that's, that's kind of the front end. Uh, start with some historical ideas and then figure out how to, how to tie that in. And so I think that's, in my, in my case, usually in the back of my mind, or at least, you know, have, a, have an idea where it's gonna go or, or how it's gonna finish, uh, really before writing that second chapter. So I can write the prologue, um, and then have the, the 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 hook kind of figured out how that's going to relate later in the story, and then jump into the rest of it. Have you ever written the book and then written the prologue? Funny you should mention that because I <laughs> I'm about uh, oh a third of the way through uh, the next pet book, and I haven't written the prologue. I I know kind of what I want to do with it, but I don't have it the hook figured out yet uh, the way I, I want it. So uh, I hope, <laughs> hope it'll work, but, <laughs> well, but we'll find question, out on the yeah, next one. I think your question is a really good one, you know, because when, if you set the hook too early, it would be very difficult to make the rest of the book work. So prologue doesn't necessarily, you have to read it first, but he didn't have to write it first, right? Right. There was another hand back there. Yes, ma'am. So kind of on that same thought, do you have like ideas of things for future books, different historical things or whatever that you'd like to discover? And then if so, how do you pick, okay, this is what I'm going to go with for the next book? How do you make that? Uh, question is, do I have a list of, of ideas and, and, and how do I decide? Uh, I do have a notebook where I jot things down and, and there's always sort of, oh, potential plot ideas. Uh, that you know might might surface and work in another story, um, and same thing kind of with the historical pieces as well. But uh, it's usually more of a kind of a, a give and take battle when when I come down to sit down and, and, and try and come up with a new story. Uh, I'll go through some ideas and uh, usually end up doing some historical research as well if, if there's something that maybe just kind of attracts my attention and that you know I think may have potential to to work into a story. 
but I normally don't have it all figured out together. It's it's usually a, a battle to say, okay, well, here's maybe a, an interesting historical idea. What can I do with that? And uh, uh, in my case, it, it usually doesn't come quick. It's usually kind of a give and take and, and percolate over things and, and, and maybe, you know, consider some other uh, subplots or ideas or elements that may be able to tie in with that before ultimately coming up with a, a story outline that's that, uh, that's going to work. Let's go back here. We missed you first. <laughs> so you're, the, you're now the second generation Dirk Pitt author. Uh, and as we've talked about, you were so many years old when the Mediterranean paper was first published. Um, and Dirk Pitt doesn't seem to age, which is great. I've really enjoyed the stories. I enjoy the, the historical, the current, and the kind of the future hook in there, too. There was one book where he jumps on his Motorola Iridium phone. Don't ask me why that jumped out of this moment in time, but it does. Uh, I'll, I'll just stop you there and say, because I used to work for Motorola Iridium, so that's how that got in there. Right? <laughs> all right. Um, so, you know, we're all aging and everything, and musicians are aging, and they're trying to sell their libraries. Uh, what do you see as, um, in the real world, um, the authorship of the Dirk Pitt series going as you decide, okay, I want to do something else now. I mean, you, you probably would do this for a long time yet to come, but do you see yourself handing this off and keeping Dirk Pitt going for another generation, maybe? Okay. Uh, question is, uh, where do I see Pitt going uh, uh, as a continuing author uh, with that? Uh, a great question, and, and I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, I'm 62 years old. Uh, I'm not sure how many more of these I can create and generate. Uh, it's, you know, it's a difficult challenge because not only with the Pit books, but with the other uh, books in the series, uh, without stepping on other people's plot lines and, uh, <laughs> and action sequences. So they certainly don't get any easier to write, that's for sure. Uh, but he's such an iconic character. Uh, I think all the characters that, that you know, my father created, uh, it's hard to see uh, a time where, where they're not in print, they're not, uh, stories are not being developed. But uh, it goes back to being able to, to maintain the quality, I guess, and, and maintain the level that, that, that he established. So it's a tough question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I have an answer. I, I would certainly like to see or hope to see at some point that I could pass the baton on to somebody else. Uh, and that uh, they could continue to entertain, you know, readers in the future. But uh, I'm not sure at this point I have an answer how or when that's going to happen. <laughs> it's a two-part question, too, because there also needs to be a publisher um, involved, you know, who's willing to publish the books. So um, legacy publishing, if this is called, when the author has died in other people want to continue their characters. There's a lot of that going on at the moment. You know, there's the Clancy series. I just heard from Brett Battles, who's going to come see us in June. He's taken over Stuart Wood, Stone Barrington, for example, which I didn't expect. Um, in September, Vince Flynn handed off, sorry, not Vince, Kyle Mills handed off the Vince Flynn franchise here on September 11th to Don Bentley. Don had been writing the Clancy Juniors, and now he's going to be writing Vince Flynn's um, character, who's temper, sorry, my age, I can't remember the name. Um, but anyway, um, it goes on, but it, it goes on as long as there are people to write them, but also as publishers decide there's enough um, audience interest. And there's an agent in England called Andrew Wiley, referred to as the Jackal, um, whose almost his entire uh, stable is, is legacy. He, he goes for estates. And I always, I always say to new authors um, when they're here, um, think about whether you want anybody to write your character when you're no longer able to do it. And you need to create a literary estate and have a literary executor who is not related to you and therefore will not profit directly from it to make that decision. If you don't really want anyone else to ever write your characters, then you need to take care of that. Um, and unfortunately, all authors are not business people. You are, because you came from a financial background, if I remember right, working. Um, but a lot of authors never think about stuff like that. And then it's kind of up to their relatives and their agents and publishers 
So some of these um, legacy estates will survive, and some of them won't. Ludlam is another one. Right. I'm trying to yeah, think. Yeah, still going. Yeah. And then, as I say, Stuart just died. So that's just coming into, you know, fruition. So Clive figured all that out well before he died in the sense that he set up, you know, what you all are doing. Mm -hmm. And it didn't come up. But I'm not sure whether you've taken that another step <laughs> forward, nor do you need to answer that question. But it's, a, it's an interesting one. It is an interesting question. Yeah. Sorry, I just thought I'd explain the mechanics of it because it's not particularly transparent. Who else has a question? First of all, thank you for continuing, keeping all the lines going here. I enjoy all the books. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when David Baldacci was here, he was talking about uh, the problem with AI, with ChatGPT and OpenAI, and they're loading all the books from multiple authors into that system to be able to generate books. Is that something you're seeing with, with these characters? Uh, the question was, is uh, are, are characters being loaded into the uh, AI uh, chat? Is it RBT? GPT, I never get the acronym right, uh, with our books. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, it has been brought to our attention that at least in one instance, uh, that's that, uh, it's been tapped into, I think, one of the, one of the Clive early books, I believe. Uh, we've made our publisher aware of it. You know, it's just sort of an early stage uh, with that, and and it's. I think it's going to be an interesting fight in the future. But but certainly, it it is definitely a concern uh, because sure, all all writers would not want their material taken uh, and and you know be used to somehow propagate a new story based on on their input uh, without without authorization. So. It's it's a, a sticky issue. It's a, a very timely issue, and and uh, uh, I think there's there's going to be some battles ahead on that. Uh, it's going to have to be some real definition of what is fan fiction. Do you all know the Fifty Shades of Grey? It was fan fiction. It was just ripped right out of Twilight. And you know, it's a it's a constant problem for successful authors is how to deal with fan fiction. You know, so AI is just going to take that one up. Magnitude. Yeah, yeah a notch. Pat, you're lurking over there. Do you have audience questions? I you do. Wanna? Actually, well, I have a really heated debate going on YouTube right now. So <laughs> uh, right now, uh, the audience is discussing whether or not you're as opposed to movies with Dirk and the other Numa and the other Numaverse or Kesslerverse authors uh, characters as your dad was. Are you open more to a Hollywood adaptation? Uh, yes, yes, I would be would be open. Uh, I for some reason I, I always go back to the Organ Files. To me, would just be a, a perfect TV series. Uh, I think it just sets itself up uh, for something that could be really visually great uh, as an ongoing series. Uh, I'm more protective of, of Pitt, I guess, just because of the, the experiences my father had uh, before with Hollywood. And so, uh, you know, we'd, certainly I'd be first to say I'd love to see uh, a big screen depiction on the order of the James Bond movies uh, that if they were done, you know, for, with, uh, with the Pitt characters. But uh, getting to that point, I think, is, is, uh, is a difficult, uh, difficult task. And... Uh, even you know, as my father tried so hard on Sahara uh, uh, to get what he wanted and his uh, maintain his vision on the screen, and it just deviated so far from that. Even though he had a why lot did of safeguards. Why did it deviate so far? I've never watched Sahara, so I don't oh. Sahara, so I don't really know why uh, it was such a disaster from Clive's point of view. Script and casting and and acting, I think. I mean, a lot of it was was casting in my mind, uh, and. My father, I mean, he talked about Steve Zahn was, was uh, the actor chosen for, for Al Giardino. And uh, he, Dad said he, he came and visited him in his office and said, Steve Zahn is sort of blonde-haired and blue-eyed. He said, well, I'll, I'll bulk up, I'll, I'll dye my hair dark curly brown, and I'll, I'll wear dark contact lenses, you know, to, to play the character. And... Uh, I don't believe he did that in the film, and 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 the persona was just totally uh, unlike El Giardino in the stories. Uh, Rain Wilson, <laughs> who's on The Office, uh, was Rudy Giardino or uh, Rudy Gunn, and and just played 
a total blithering idiot. I mean, so the the characters were just terribly dumbed down, and then uh, the screenplay, you know, didn't didn't follow the book, which would obviously when you get to a movie, you have to cut a lot out of the book anyway. Um, but it just it just wasn't a serious attempt, I think, uh, to to follow the book and to be a serious movie. I think. I mean, obviously. There's a lot of fun in the stories. Uh, the father was the first to, to to want to make sure the stories are fun and entertaining, uh, but I think they just were, in part, uh, targeting maybe a, a younger audience and, and just sort of lost sight of what the books were about. So, um, even though he had script and cast approval, it didn't come out the way he wanted. So, however, you guys are living proof on the subject that. Michael Connolly and I talked about the other day, and I've been talking to the Wall Street Journal and some other things about good television may increase book sales because people, you know, who haven't read books may watch it and really like it. Bad television does not seem to hurt book sales. I mean, you know, if you saw it, you're still here, right? Even if Sahara was a bomb. Um, and I find that really interesting that, you know, there are a number of authors, John Sanford, Bob Parker, Sarah Paresky, you know, terrible movie adaptations, you know, but it didn't actually hurt them as authors or hurt their books. So I think, I think Clive, in a way, was so personal to him. It didn't hurt his book sales, but it just upset him. Yeah, but I, I think, true, I, I mean, but still, say, say in the Pitt movies, I mean, you don't want too many, you want too many away. repetitive failures, right? If you go back and the third one's a bomb, too, then, you know. <laughs> no, I can see it. Do you have any, another question? You're still over there. I am. I'm, I'm still hiding out. Uh, another question online that Facebook would like to know, um, Tracy Smith, I believe is his name. Uh, he'd like to know if you or any of the other Kesslerverse authors were offered the opportunity to go on to a NUMA expedition. Would you want to do that? Would that be something that would interest you? And would you want to write about it? Well, I've been on lots of NUMA expeditions, so I guess... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and obviously the other co-writers are welcome to join me next time around. Uh, bring your seasick pills, and I'll meet you guys in the North Sea, okay? <laughs> right. Anybody else here in the audience? Yeah. What will it be about? You know, it's always hard. Somebody asks to descri describe the book you know, that you're writing or that you're working on, and... And it's, it's it's too early to it's, tell. It's too early. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> let me get a little further into it. And then, uh... Actually, I'm really impressed that Dirk remembers as much of this book as he does, because our experience is that when the author gets here with whatever the book it's just published, they're at least one book ahead, sometimes two, and truly can't remember, because uh, your mind has gone off into a whole new world, no, right? Oh, I remember that last time. You, you asked me something about one of the characters in the last book, and I, I just totally drew a blank, because I couldn't remember. What... That's why I'm here, in part. <laughs> I have just read the book, <laughs> so it makes it easier. Anyone else? Oh, two more. Yeah, I, I just, I, you had mentioned earlier, of course, Dirk Pitt is very similar to your dad, Clive, and all his other characters that are in most of his other books, like Al Giardino, and as you mentioned, you know, uh, all the other characters. Are there, uh, you know, are they people that he knew in the past, or are they completely made up? Or was Al Giardino maybe your dad's friend back in, you know, <laughs> 1952 or something? College roommate. <laughs> Boy, you are very... Uh, you could say, oh, yeah, that was Bob Jones. And, you know, yeah, I mean, he had a good buddy named whatever type thing. Or, or were they completely just made up characters? Yeah, no, you, you kind of hit it on the head. question was... Uh, were were any other uh, of the characters in the books uh, real people that my father knew, and uh, the only one that was 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 Al Giardino, and in fact uh, he was an Air Force buddy of of my father's when he uh, served in the war uh, served in the Air Force during uh, the Korean War. They were both stationed in Hawaii, and he was a, a short little Italian guy from New Jersey uh, who was uh, a, quite a character. Uh, it is, but it was spelled differently. I think he, he spelled it. I think his name was actually Giordano, and and so uh, my father changed the spelling of the name. But other than that, uh, uh, dead on. I I met him uh, once or twice uh, late in his life, and uh, and he was sort of true to character. So uh, I think that's the first the only one that, that pops into mind right now in terms of the recurring characters that that was 
definitely based on, on a real person. I want to thank you for asking that question, because I meant to start out by saying today is Veterans Day and to send a salute out to all the people who have served, such as your dad and his roommate. And so, and I forgot. So I really appreciate your asking that question. Thank you. Did you have one too? Um, my question is about Puma. So um, did your father like set up or set aside funding for that to continue or how does that continue to be funded? I know you said it's a nonprofit, but how does that continue to be funding funded now? Uh, by begging for money mostly. <laughs> <laughs> We, did we get some from us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we still sell. We have a, a website. We still sell some merchandise on there, so that 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 helps fund it. Uh, we we've got uh, actually Doxis helping us out. Um, I'm wearing a Clive Cussler edition Doxa watch uh, that was issued earlier this year, and so they are donating a uh, proceeds, a portion of the proceeds to fund Numa as well. And then I kick some money in as well when it's time to, to write the, the checks for charging a boat. I think when Clive so. started it, some of his royalties he assigned to Numa, didn't he, or something like that? Uh, there was some something he did to set up the original funding, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he funded most of it personally. Right, uh, no, yeah. he did, right. Um, the other authors that are in this, this Kessler verse, so do they have to, like, like, are you in charge of the Cusslerverse where they have to come to you and say, this is what we want to do? Like, I'm a big fan of the Fargos. And, like, do they does the author have to come to you and say, this is what we want to do with the Fargos, the next one? Or is it kind of up to them? To, how do you, how do you yeah, do absolutely. That? In terms of working with the other co-authors, uh, they'll they'll come with a proposal for the book. And, and we'll, we'll swap some ideas. And then they'll go back and, and make an outline. And we'll review that as well. But do you get the final say for that? Yes, yes. Well, it goes one more step because then it has to go to the publisher and there's an editor at the publisher who may or may not decide to chime in. Right, yeah. And I also would add my agent uh, also plays a, a, a critical role in, in reviewing those as well. But part of it, you know, if you think about it, with all these different books, um, part of part of the job is to try to make sure that nobody steps into anybody else's story or landscape or, as we said earlier, blows up anything that somebody else has already blown up. Um, right. So it's hard is that you keep writing because, I mean, you know, the, you're just like covering the world. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking that uh, – uh, Graham Brown completed a book called Dark Watch, and uh, it, I, I don't think it got to press yet. And Mike Madden had come with a proposal for uh, an organ file story, and it was almost verbatim. <laughs> the plot, the plot driver was almost verbatim what, what Graham had just written about, and so it's uh, uh, it's something we have to watch out for and be careful of because it's it's reality. I mean, we've used so many plots. Uh, it's it's hard not to trip over ourselves. And so many places. I mean, you just pointed out you're back in Bermuda. Mm -hmm. You know, in this book, you sort of have to cycle back often to yeah. places you've already written about, but in a different context. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at some point, you, <laughs> you've covered the globe a couple times over, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to avoid that. Um, so to the discussion earlier about casting, and you would, you think the Oregon Files would be a great TV series who do you have in mind for Juan Cabrillo? Question is, who do I have in mind for Juan Cabrillo if the Oregon Files went on TV? I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> hey, Dirk, Dirk Pitt's tough enough, okay? So I, I haven't gone down the list of Juan Cabrillo yet. But, you know, what uh, often happens, too, is these projects take so long that the guy that you initially picked that would be great is now too old. Um, I mean, that happened with Doug Preston and George Clooney. George bought the rights to do the Monster of Florence, and then stuff went on and stuff went on, and, and then George aged out of being able to actually... He wasn't going to be the monster. He was going to be the, you know, the other side. But that happens, too. Yeah, that you can't, I mean, original casting may not work by the time something actually comes in. Yeah, or something bad happens to your actor, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, no, it could be bad. Well, thank you. We probably left your <clears throat> butts in chairs too long. Um, wasn't it great? Any of you went to the Connolly event? They actually had padding in the pews at the at the church, so it wasn't nearly as squirmy as <laughs> Is this one, but I'm, 60 minutes is usually long enough, so I want to thank you for your attention. Um, I'm going to ask Amy, how many tickets did we do? 
Thank you. So I have a book to give away. Um, and I have to say, this is a, a personal thing. Those of you who have a number are all eligible for this. We had a local author named Frederick Ramsey, who, if he had not been a minister, would have been a born criminal. He was absolutely, I gave the eulogy at his funeral, and I said that, which really shocked his family and relatives, but it was true. Um, Fred was a genius for plots, and he wrote a series because his... Um, his son was a, is actually involved in the government in Botswana, for reasons I have never known. Um, and he's written, he wrote a trilogy set in Botswana with a game warden and all. And it was always an animal at the heart of it. And this one, Danger Woman, which I think is a great title, and Valsa Hyena, which is not a lovable character, but nonetheless um, a fascinating one. And I love this book. So if you will pick a number between, what did you say, 1 and 28? Thank you. Uh, we'll give this book away. Oh, pick a number? Yep. 17. Person has to be here to win. So if you don't have 17 on your ticket, we'll get to pick another number. Did you look? Oh, yes? No. Do you know that, uh, now that we've done that, 17 is the number that authors most often call. Do not ask me why. <laughs> I'm serious. It really is. All right, so now that you know that... <laughs> It just happens all the time. I have no idea why. It's the lucky number. Pick another one. All right, 12. <laughs> I may have to just throw right, this Barbara. book up in the world. What are, you better oh, pick the next number. All right, what am I going to pick? Um, 25. Oh, look yeah, at right. you. You must have been sending vibes at me, sir. <laughs> so if you like this, there are two earlier books. I absolutely love them. One of them is a lion, and one of them I'm trying to remember is a, a, a gorilla, I think. Anyway, Fred sadly died, as you might have gathered when I said I did the eulogy at his funeral, so we can't access his books anymore, but they were great. Thank you all very much for coming. Let's give Dirk a round of applause. Thank you very much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.